0: We're really excited. We feel so blessed that he's here with us today, so please help me in welcoming Mr. Jim Hobson. Well, good morning. morning. Thank you. It is an honor and privilege to be here. As Shauna mentioned, we've uh, had the privilege of working with your church now, probably for about seven or eight years with uh, some of our material, and uh, just excited to be a part of of what is happening here. Um, The ultimate journey, as we talk about that, it's really something, and I'm not going to really be talking a lot about it, but I want to introduce it to help introduce my message. It models after the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt. And if you can remember that story with me going back, the Israelites had been in Egypt in slavery for some 400 years. And if you could go with me back and imagine that you were one of those Israelites... And uh, God hears the cry of his people, and he sends Moses to them to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they might come and worship me. And if you were one of those Israelites with me, and he came, it's like we had been slaves our entire lives. We'd been born slaves, our parents had been slaves, our grandparents had been slaves, And it was just uh, uh, an entire slave mentality that we had uh, been uh, embedded with into our minds. And he miraculously leads them out after these ten magnificent plagues, God uh, manifesting his incredible uh, power and divinity over all the gods of Egypt. And then he brings them out, and uh, different theologians estimate somewhere between uh, one to three million people were in that exodus. If you can imagine a couple of million people going anywhere on foot. You know, but but it would be like, you know, the night before, it's like, okay, tomorrow we're leaving and we're heading out of, of Egypt, and you can take with you anything you want, as long as you can carry it. And if you can imagine that coming out of Minneapolis with a couple of million people marching down Interstate 35 towards the promised land. I'm from Iowa. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. Okay? But anyway, they're marching down. And when they left, the Scripture says that the Egyptians poured upon them the riches of Egypt. They're carrying silver and gold and all kinds of precious gems and all different things with them. And there's got to be an excitement. And the kids are running around and we're free. And now we're going and we come up against the waters... And now we look back, and here comes Pharaoh's armies, and we're trapped. Now panic sets in. There's nowhere to go. Then God parts the waters. We walk through on the dry land, and it's incredible with these pillars of water on each side. We get through to the other side, and then Pharaoh and his armies decide to follow after us. And they're coming on that that, that dry land also and barreling in on us. And then all of a sudden, God releases the waters. And now Pharaoh's armies are destroyed right before us. See, up to that point, we thought we were free. But now we really are. The strong arm of of Egypt had been destroyed. The enemy was defeated completely. God then, through Moses, led the people to Mount Sinai, where he gave them what we typically refer to as the Ten Commandments, but that was just basically an introduction to the whole of the Torah which was written in a literary structural style of a, of a wedding ketubah. A ketubah is a, a wedding covenant contract. He married her. And, and after that, Israel was called his bride. And, and when she would go and worship other gods, she would be called the adulterous nation. So he marries her, that intimacy of bond, and then uh, leads her across... And they come to the promised land. They get to the promised land and they send in the 12 spies. And you may remember the story about that. The 12 spies go in and they come back and they bring their report of what they see. And they all say that it is an incredible place. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, it's a land with huge fruit. In and they're bearing some of that fruit with them to show. And they also say, though, that it is a land with fortified cities and giants. And to me, though, the most telling part of that account is when they say, and we are as grasshoppers. See, what happens to a grasshopper? It gets squashed. And and that's how they saw themselves. Of course they saw themselves that way. Their entire lives they've gotten squashed. They were there at the promised land, And and they were able to see it. They could pick the dirt and run it through their fingers. They could smell it. They could even taste it, eating of the fruit of it. Every sensory perception they had was there experiencing the promised land that God wanted to give them, but they couldn't see it as theirs. Why? Because you can't possess your promised land if you're a grasshopper. And that's how they saw themselves. Now, that is, to me, the model that God uses for each of us. Now, in that account, at the end of that, they, God had to then, they couldn't enter in at that moment. God had to take them back out into the desert, where some people might say to punish them, others might say to discipline them. But what I would say is to rewire their brains. To bring them into alignment with the reality of what God had already done in them. They were His chosen people. They were His beloved bride. They were the apple of His eye. He was their conqueror. He was their God. They were, His, they, they were in intimate relationship with Him. But they couldn't see it. See, what God does in us, He does in our spirit. But our, our, our soul, which is made up of our mind, our will, and our emotions, those things have to be brought into alignment with what God has done in our spirit. Amen. And that's just like for you and me. When we receive Christ, immediately we are set free. The enemy is defeated. But the question becomes, how do we see ourselves? And are we listening to the voices of the past and what they say about us, or are we listening to God and what He declares about us? There's a little children's story that I think is just incredible that helps illustrate some of the points I want to be making today. It's a, it's a book by uh, Max Lucado. It's called You Are Special, and uh, we've got some pictures that are going to go with us. I want to do a little story time. And so I'm going to read you this children's story. So take on a little childhood Kind of perspective with me here, if you'd give me that. And uh, and you know, I think you'll find it's meant for more than just children. Let's read this. The wimmicks were small wooden people. All of the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Each wimmick was different. Some had big noses, others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short, some wore hats, others wore coats. But all were made by the same carver, and all lived in the village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each wimmick had a box of golden star stickers and a box of gray dot stickers. Up and down the streets, all, of their, all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones... Those with uh, smooth wood and fine paint always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones, of course, got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Some Wemmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so Good. It made them want to do something else to get another star. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. Puccinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched so that people would give him more dots. Then, when he would try to explain why he fell... He would say something silly, and the wimmicks would give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water, and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many gray dots that some people would come up and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves lots of dots. The wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm, I'm not a good Wimmick, he would say. The few times he went outside, he hung around other Wimmicks who had a lot of dots. He felt better around them. One day, he met a Wimmick who was unlike any he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just... Wouldn't. her name was lucia it wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers it's just that the stickers didn't stick some of the wimmicks admired lucia for having no dots so they would run up and give her a star but it would fall off others would look down on her for having no stars so they would give her a dot but it wouldn't stay either that's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless wimmick how she did it. Why, it's easy, Lucia replied. Every day I go to see Eli. Eli? Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in the workshop with him. But, but, but why? Why don't you find out for yourself? Go up the hill, he's there. And with that, the wimmick who had no stickers turned and skipped away. "'But, but, but will he want to see me?' Punchinello cried out. Lucia didn't hear, so Punchinello went home. He sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around giving each other stars and dots. "'It's not right,' he muttered to himself, and he decided to go see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm I'm not staying here, and he turned to leave. Then he heard his name. Punchinello. The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come, let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You, you know my name? the little wimmick asked. Why, why, of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Mmm, the maker spoke thoughtfully as he looked at the gray dots. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I I didn't mean to, Eli. I I really, I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other Wimmicks think. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wimmicks, just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you are pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me? Special? Why? I, I can't walk. I, I, I can't jump. My, my paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? He looked at Punchinello. Eli looked at Punchinello put his hands on those, those small wooden shoulders and, and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping that you would come, Eli explained. I, I came because I met someone who had no marks said Punchinello I know she told me about you well, why don't the stickers stay on her the maker spoke softly because she has decided that what i think is more important than what they think the stickers only stick if you let them what 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 the stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about the stickers. I'm not sure I understand. Eli smiled. You will, but it will take some time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the wimmick walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart of hearts he thought, ah, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. I love that story. It's a great illustrative of a terrific principle. When did the dot fall? Was it when Punchinello met Someone, that stickerless woman, Lucia, Lucia means light. When he saw someone bearing that light, was it even when he met her? Was it when he sat in that window and said, It's not right! Was it when he sat there before his maker and his maker put his hands on his shoulders and told him that he was special? No. The... Dot didn't fall until he said to himself, I think he really means it. It's not about what other people say to us. It's about what we say to ourselves. While what happened to us in the past is significant, what's more important is how we see ourselves because of the things that have happened to us in the past. Let me give you an example. Let's take a little survey here. How many of you know that God loves you? Raise hands. Very good. You can put them down. How many of you are confident that if I let you go home tonight and look in your Bible, and you can look in pastor's notes from last week or anything else you've got around, but that you're confident you could find inside the Scriptures, Scripture that you could show someone else to tell them that God loves them? Can you do that? Okay. Put them down. How many of you know that if you have received Christ or come to faith or chosen Him as your covenant representative or however you want to express that experience that that you are forgiven? Got that? All right. And could you find Scripture to show them that also if they were to do that, that they would be forgiven? Okay, we're doing good. Now let me ask you one more question. You don't have to raise your hand. But... How many of you still feel shame or guilt over something you did 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Or sometimes feel lonely or abandoned or rejected or just plain not good enough? See, how does that match up? It doesn't. The problem is, I hear people all the time say, I know that, that God loves me up here. In my head but I don't always feel it here in my heart it's not enough to know something intellectually it's not like you're taking a true false test you know does God love you yes true does if I've received Christ am I forgiven true no well that's good and it's significant for yes maybe our salvation It doesn't affect our lives until it goes beyond head knowledge and gets woven into the core fiber of who we are so that it becomes the very natural, instinctive part of me that reacts and filters what's coming at me. I call it what glasses we're wearing. Like like the Israelites in Egypt were coming into the Promised Land were wearing glasses of slavery so that everything they saw in their circumstances were filtered through that. For us, we have to get these truths beyond a head knowledge into us so that they become the literal glasses that we see life through. Again, why is that? It's because what God does in us, He does in our spirit. You know, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to to Jesus and asks Him, you know, Lord, what must I do uh, to have eternal life? He says, you must be born again. And he's like, what? Enter back into my mother's womb? No, not born again of the flesh, born again of the spirit. Yeah. See, but our soul, that mind, will, and emotions have to be brought back into alignment with what God has done in us. We, I read earlier there, John 8, 36, about uh, the Lord setting us free. If we back up, it says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free or in the in the message version of that i like the wording of that it says then you will experience for yourselves the truth and the truth will set you free what is the truth about you the truth is and this is how god sees us is that when we receive christ or come to faith okay scripture says immediately that we are holy and righteous and just that we are overcomers that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that we're the apples of his eye, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. The Apostle Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who now lives in you? He formed and fashioned you to be his dwelling place. And when we receive Christ, he now takes up residence in us, and that's who we are but how do we see ourselves? What would someone look like that literally believed what God said about them? Would their life be characterized by fear or uh, stress, loneliness, feelings of not being good enough, of being unlovable? See, how could someone fear, live in fear, if they literally believe that the living God Creator of all the universe lived in them. How could someone experience stress and live out of that stress if if the the God living in them loved them, if they knew that he loved them intimately and passionately, and that he had a perfect and complete solution for every situation that they face? That he would never leave them or forsake them. See, how does that work? It doesn't match. Now, I'm not saying we don't experience fear and stress in our life and those things. Those are real. Those are emotions. Those are things that God gave us. They're gifts to us. But they're not gifts given to us that we wallow in and live in and out of and can't have to continue a life stuck in those. They're supposed to be more like, more like the indicator lights on the dashboard of your car. And they go off. Fear. Stress. Stress. Ah! And I look at that and I see it and and, and it's supposed to tell me, hello, something's wrong. You're starting to think it's about you again. You're starting to think that you have to pull it off. You're starting to think it's about your resources and your ability and about how the buck stops with you. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about my resources and ability and the buck doesn't stop with me. It's him and his resources and his abilities. And the buck stops with him. If we think it's about us, you got a right to be stressed. And you ought to be afraid. The living God, creator of all the universe, lives in me. And he loves me intimately and passionately. He has a perfect and complete solution for every situation that I face. And he is my perfect and complete solution. And he has come not only to give me life, but life more abundantly. Yeah. That's truth. And that is the glasses that I want to see life through. Amen. I have a beer, Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. 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 See, again, do we side with what God says about us or do we side with the voices of our past experiences and what they say about us? See, I'm going to share with you a, 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 a very basic truth. Here it is. You ready for this one? Your brain only listens to you. Wives, you know that. He won't listen. His brain's listening to him. See, you know, I could, I could walk, walk over here, and I'm going to pick on Pat because she had a name tag on. I could walk to Pat, and I could say, Pat, you are an awesome incredible, godly woman, and i got neighbors around you shaking their heads, yes! I could say that you're an awesome, incredible, godly woman and tell you that anybody who gets close enough to you to become your friend is going to be blessed. Now, when I say that to her, don't respond, when I say that to her, her brain says something to her. I don't know what her brain said, but it said something. It may have said yes, thank you. It may have said, you don't really know me. It may have said, would would you still think that if, if you knew this about me? It may have said, what do you want? What are you trying to get out of me? See, I could arrange to get a whole line of people that know Pat to tell her that and each and every one of them believing that about her but if she didn't believe that about herself maybe not the first time somebody says it or the second or the third or fifth or eighth or I don't know but somewhere along that line somebody is gonna say it to her and she all of a sudden is gonna break and she's gonna go stop it! what are you guys doing? stop making fun of me! She's going to feel like somebody's put the sticker on her back, like, you know, in grade school, kick me, you know, on her back, we're making fun of her. No. See, her brain only listens to her. What are you telling yourself? That's what's important. Change your self-talk, and you will change your thought patterns. Change your thought patterns, and you will change your life. That's why Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform any longer into the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the battle that the Apostle Paul is is telling about in in Romans 7. I love it. where He he gets very real with us. He says, The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do are the very things I do. Does anybody else recognize that about themselves okay i want to i want to read through that passage and spend a couple of minutes there if we could and they're putting it on the screen there for you already just i'm going to start with verse 15 it says there i do not understand what i do for what i want to do i do not do but what i hate i do and if i do what i do not want to do i agree that the law is good as it is it is no longer i myself who do it but it is sin living in me I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Two things there. One, did you notice he repeated himself? Okay, I didn't go back up. He repeated himself. You don't see the Apostle Paul doing that a lot in his writing, but it's a very... Uh, 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 appropriate Hebraic style of writing when you wanted to emphasize something you just wrote it again now if he's not rewriting that and you're seeing that all over the New Testament there must be something really important in here the other thing I'm looking at this what's this, you know, if I don't want to do it it's no longer me who does it, it's sin living in me has he developed a split personality is he in denial I don't know, let's keep reading verse 21, so I find this law at work when I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to read through that again. We're going to take it off the screen. This time, if you've got your Bibles, don't read them. Watch me. I want to try to illustrate and bring this home a little more for us, okay? Because I don't believe the Apostle Paul has developed a split personality or that he's in denial. I believe he has shown us the absolute key to the victorious Christian life right here. So watch me. Here we go. I'm setting the stage. Spirit, flesh. Spirit, flesh. Got that? Here we go. I'll start back again at Romans 7.15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, spirit, I do not do. But what I hate, flesh, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, flesh, I agree that the law is good, spirit. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, spirit, but it is sin living in me, flesh. I know that nothing good lives in me, flesh, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, spirit, but I cannot carry it out, flesh, flesh, For what I do is not the good I want to do, spirit. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing, flesh. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, flesh, it is no longer I, spirit, who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it, flesh. So, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, spirit, evil is right there with me, flesh. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, spirit. But I see another law at work within the members of my body, flesh, waging war against the law of my mind, spirit, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, flesh, at at work within my members. What a wretched man I am, flesh, who will rescue me, spirit, from this body of death, flesh. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to determine, like the Apostle Paul, who we really are. What he's telling us there is we must identify with this new creation that we are. And we must believe God and what he says about us. All of us are born in flesh. And this is who we are. Dead in our flesh. When we receive Christ, we are born again. We become spirit. And when that happens, Scripture says that we are holy and righteous and just, that we're overcomers, joiners with Jesus Christ, members of a royal priesthood, temples of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. That's who we are. But how do we see ourselves? Most Christians I encounter still see themselves here. And it plays out this way they are continually trying to prove that they're spiritual. But if you feel like you have to prove you're spiritual and you're doing things what I call for God, okay, doing it over and over, trying really hard to be good enough to do whatever I can, and and yet not being... See, if you're trying, if you're having to prove it, what does it mean that you believe? That you're not. See, the point is, I don't get there by my works in the first place. So how can I do anything to get there? I can't. So if I'm still trying to prove it, I don't believe it. That His work is sufficient and that I am free. And that I am not who I was. So, instead of doing things for God, for God, for God, to prove ourselves, we need to be doing things from God. See, As we walk out our lives from God, it's no longer about us. How many people get burned out in churches, workers and all that? Why is that? Because it's about their resources, their ability. They have to pull it off. They have to fix that person. They have to do those things. The stress is there. But if it's not about me, and I can't do anything anyway, and it's about him and his resources and his ability, and I'm doing it from him, I'm okay. So so here's the deal. See, the key, I believe, comes down to two words in this. Conviction versus condemnation. And this is where it comes into the walking out of our lives. Because if we see ourselves as flesh, this is what we're listening to, the voices of our past, and we're doing things for God, for God, for God, and we blow it because we will because we're human. At that moment, what happens is the enemy, Satan, the accuser, the liar, the deceiver, of the brethren, he hurls accusations against us and says, you think you're spiritual? I saw what you did. You were back on the Internet again last night looking at those pictures. I heard how you spoke to your spouse. I saw what you did with your children. I saw what happened at work there. I was there when you did this, you did that. Get back here. You're not spiritual. Conform back into the patterns of my world. This is who you are. Condemnation. But if I see myself as spirit and I'm living from him and I'm walking my life out from him, drawing everything from him, Lord, thank you that it's not about me. Thank you that you are everything in me. That I can rest in you. And as such, I, I lay down my life again today. And, and wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, Lord God, you, it's about you. And I'm living out of that. And I blow it. Because I will, because I'm human. When I do, and I step into my flesh and sin. At that moment, God's spirit in me calls out to me, Jim, that's not who you are, son. That's not who you are. You're not a liar. That's not who you are. You're my beloved child. You're you're the temple of my Holy Spirit. You're holy. You're righteous. You're just, this is here. Come back. And when I hear him wooing and calling to me, and I experience his conviction, conviction, then I repent, and I turn back. Conviction leads to repentance. Condemnation drives us away from God. If you feel yourself having a hard time attaching to God, then you are experiencing condemnation. God wants to bring you back into alignment through conviction. And it depends upon how you're seeing yourself. Okay? What keeps us from a scene? And I should say, I'd finish reading through Romans 7. What's Romans 8.1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay. What keeps me from seeing myself the way God sees me? My past. My emptiness, my hurts, my wounds. Until you allow God to heal your hurts and wounds, his love will never get from your head to your heart. You will continue to feel empty inside and try to do things for God to prove that you are okay, and you will look to other things to fill you. It's not about your circumstances, it's about your glasses. If you remember Stephen, the first martyr, and they were, uh, if you're around the account, they drag him out of the city, throw him down. An entire crowd gathers around. They're picking up rocks and they're going to throw them at him until he dies. Can you think of any circumstances that would be more fearful, more stressful, more overwhelming, where you would feel more unwanted, more unloved, more abandoned? I can't. In those circumstances, how does he respond? First of all, how would we typically respond as Christians? I think there's three ways that most Christians might respond out of. The first one is, Lord, strike them dead. You know, we'd call down heaven. The second one might be, Lord, take me out of here. Get me out of my circumstances. The third one is, Lord, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? I've served you and done all these things for you, but now in my moment of need, where are you? See, the question becomes, do you see God through your circumstances or do you see your circumstances through God? Stephen saw his circumstances through God. Listen to his response. I see the heavens opening and the Son of Man coming for me. And then he begins to pray for the ones that are about to kill him. Why? Why? Because you know what he knows? He's okay. Because his God loves him intimately and passionately and has a perfect and complete solution for his life. And even if they kill him, he's okay. God's got him covered. He's coming for him. It's all right. Therefore, it's not about him and he can pour out that love to those around him. And pray for them. How do you see yourself? Are you the dwelling place of the living God? Or is there something from your past that is keeping you from experiencing all that God has for you? It all starts when we begin to see ourselves the way God sees us. Like Punchinello. It all starts when we can really say to ourselves, I I think he really means it my prayer for you is that you will see yourselves the way that God sees you and that you will see your circumstances through God's eyes. I bless you to see the truth about yourself and your circumstances for the truth will set you free. If you want to go forward with God, let me encourage you to join us on the ultimate journey. Each of us must take our exodus from the bondage of our past and the voices that we're, we were listening to into that freedom that God has for us as we learn to come into alignment with what he thinks, feels, and believes about us. If you do, you might just find yourself being transformed by the renewing of your mind and saying to yourself, that's not me. I'm not who I was. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your life. We thank you that you are the giver of life. We thank you that you are our creator and that you didn't just set things in motion and step back and say you're on your own. But that before the foundations of the world, you set a format, a framework, a structure that would allow for you to enter into intimate relationship with us. And that you knew each one here in this room before they were ever born. Before they were formed in their mother's womb, you knew them. And Lord, that you formed and fashioned them to be your dwelling place. That you might have that intimate relationship with them. And Lord, I do right now bless each one here to walk in that truth and reality. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I understand that, uh, all-